There we go. All right, welcome to RUF. We, uh, this semester, have been, uh, we've started last week, actually, our semester series, which is the Ten Commandments. But before we kind of jump into that, let me make two really quick announcements, or really one quick announcement. After hours, it was such a success last week out here on the courtyard, we're going to do it again uh, tonight after this meeting, and so we'll kind of take our social time out to the courtyard in College Hill Presbyterian Church. I want to thank them. I don't know if anyone's here from uh, that church at this moment, but I want to thank them for actually hosting and providing the food for us. So if you see the folks from College Hill afterwards, please say thank you. Uh, And so please come hang out with us at the end of RUF tonight. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, that's near the front of your Bible. It's actually the second book, so turn all the way to the front. You'll see Exodus there. Week one, we looked at kind of a big kind of overview of who we are as RUF and what we want to be about. And in summary, what we decided and what we talked about from Revelation chapter one is that we want to be a ministry that claims to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Week two, we started our series on the Ten Commandments, but this week and last week, we actually are going to, we laid the foundation for our series on the Ten Commandments. And last week, we talked about how really the heart of the Ten Commandments can be summarized with one word, love. And we worked out this idea of loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. And we kind of focused in on what it means to love our neighbor. And the reason why we say at the heart of the commandments is love is because remember in the New Testament when Jesus was cornered in Matthew 20, they were trying to trick him to say, hey, what is the greatest commandment? And it was a trick. And Jesus basically says, well... The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we talked about last week. This week we're going to continue to work that out and lay uh, some foundation for our series this semester. And we'll start next week with commandment uh, number one. Let me say up front that this is a pretty difficult series uh, to tackle. And... It's really twofold, the reason why I say that. And one of the reasons why it is difficult is because I have come face-to-face with my own personal failure in these areas that we're going to discuss this semester. I realize my own failure to actually uh, follow God and to be what God has called me to be. I said last week, uh, and it's true of this week too, this week I have broken all the commandments in thought, word, and deed. How do I say that? Well, it's true, but also remember James chapter 2. James says if you break simply one part of it, you are guilty of breaking it all. And as I thought about that, so it would be real tempting to just not even think about approaching a series like this. But my personal failure in the commandments, and what I'm going to guess is your personal failure with obeying the commandments, is not a reason not to do a series on the Ten Commandments. Because we are called as Christians, and I am called as the campus minister of RUF, to stand 
before you and to open up God's word and to see how God would have us live. In other words, the commandments are much more, okay? We've got to get this, much more about what God desires us to be and how he desires us to live. It's much more that than our actual failure to keep the commandments. That's the first reason why I think it's so difficult. The second thing is that you have often heard the Ten Commandments used in very harmful and hurtful ways. And so you're coming with a lot of preconceived notions about the commandments. And maybe you've been beaten up by them or made to feel guilty about them. And you know, and I know, that we, none of us in this room, let's just get that off the table really quickly, have kept the commandments. And so my prayer is not, it, the last thing I want to do, and if you've been around here long enough and you know my heart, like the last thing I want to do and we want to do as a ministry is to stand up here week in and week out and just to tell you over and over you haven't kept the commandments. <laughs> And to stand up here week in and week out and just make you feel more guilty and more shame than you already do. And to feel more depressed and defeated than you already feel. That is the last thing I want to do. Here's my prayer as we start this series. Is that we, me included, because I don't see it this way. My prayer for all of us is that we would start to see the commandments as actually gifts from God. That we would see the commandments and we would hear God saying to us, My dear children, this is how life works best. My prayer is that we would actually begin to love them because they come from God. And they show us who He is and what He's like. Tonight we're going to look at the prologue to the Ten Commandments. That's what it's called. And it's Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bible, follow along with me. It's a quick, short passage, but a very, very important passage as we're going to see. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This is God's Word. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Father, um, as we come to the introduction or to the prologue, would you remind us uh, of the context in which the Ten Commandments are set? Would you remind us that they start with a relationship and that at their core they are about love? Father, use this uh, passage tonight and our time together to help us gain clarity, to understand the Ten Commandments better, to understand how to interpret the law, which is often a daunting task. Father, you tell us in your word that without your very spirit working in our hearts, we cannot understand the Bible. We can't understand what you want to say to us. And so come... And apply this passage to our hearts. And more than anything, show us the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. You're going to hear me talk about I'm a pretty proud father. 
<laughs> and so you're going to hear me talk about my girls a lot, and I'm sorry, but little kids make really good illustrations. And so you'll hear me talk about my girls, but I've got, as, as you've heard really the last couple of weeks, I think I've probably mentioned them, but I've, I've got four girls and they're all seven and under. Uh, and so they're into this thing where they like puzzles, okay? Now, of course, their puzzles are small, like 10 pieces or less. You don't even need the box top. <laughs> you know, they're very simple to work, but they really enjoy the puzzles, uh, but they're very simple, a kid, a seven-year-old could work them in five minutes. But you know, as you kind of, the puzzles get more difficult, if you move up to a 50-piece, 100-piece, 500-pieces, and particularly a 1,000-piece puzzle, you know that it's impossible to work a large puzzle, if you're a puzzle worker, without what? The box top, Right? You know, anytime you work a large puzzle, you have that top sitting so that you can see the big picture. I mean, think about how incredibly frustrating it would be to work a thousand-piece puzzle without the big picture of even what it's supposed to look like. You couldn't do it. You could, might get the edges and the corners uh, and all the straight edges, but you wouldn't get very far after that. You would be very, very frustrated as that thing started to come together. Because you're looking at all the colors and that kind of thing and kind of placing them in one area of the puzzle. And so you'd be very frustrated, wouldn't you? You need the big picture. Well, the same is true with the Ten Commandments. Before we can even start moving through the commandments one by one, which we're going to do starting next week, we have to take a step back. And we've got to look at the box top. We've got to take a step back and actually look at the big picture because it will help us as we start moving through them to give us things and give us hooks that we can hang things on as we start moving through them one by one. And so tonight we're going to look at three things that help us make sense of the Ten Commandments. Okay, the things are this, the purpose, the motivation, and the hope. You can see that in the outline printed for you. We'll start with the purpose. The lesson is really simple uh, this semester. In our study of the Ten Commandments, there are tons of ways in which we could approach this subject. Countless ways. But more than anything, one of the most important things that I want you to get out of our study, and we're going to come to it over and over again, is simply this. The Ten Commandments are so much more than an arbitrary religious code of conduct. Rather, the Ten Commandments are actually God's design for your life. That's it. If you don't get anything else, that's one of the main things I want us to see. The purpose of the commandments is not just a religious code of conduct. It is God's design for how you should live. Last week I used the C.S. Lewis quote. I love the quote. He says that in the moral laws, and anytime you hear the word moral law, that means Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are used, and are, they are there for the proper working of the human machine, Lewis says. Let me translate. The facets of our humanity hang together, Lewis is getting at, in such a way that when you honor your design, your life is blessed. 
But if you dishonor your design, and some of you know what this is like, your life is a complete wreck. Your life is full of destruction and alienation and dysfunction. Think about it this way. When you were a young child, you accepted what your parents said without question. When you cross the street, look both ways. When you honor that command, what happens? Well, your life is blessed. You do not get hit by a car. But somewhere along the lines, and I don't know where it was for you, but somewhere along the line, we begin to push back against those commands, don't we? We begin to question those commands. And you start to question those commands maybe because of the gross hypocrisy that you see in your parents' life. Or you begin to question those commands because you see how inconsistent their discipline is with you and it makes you want to push back, dig your heels in, and really refuse to obey or make any effort to do what they say. Maybe for some of you it was the influence of other people. You went off to college or you went off to high school and you started thinking, that person seems so much cooler than me. They seem so much more mysterious and detached. Can't you recall the excitement and the dangerous time in your life when you seem to break free and do the things that you're not supposed to do? For some of you, the thrill is yet to end. But either way, here's what happened. You begin to celebrate at that moment the defining characteristic for your generation which is what? Freedom. Your generation, in my generation in a lot of ways, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want anyone that would have an opinion and we don't think that they have the right to tell us what to do or how to live or how to be. But here's the reality. In pursuit of our freedom... We have actually lost our freedom. Because is it not possible that the kind of, there is a kind of freedom that doesn't really make you free? It's a kind of freedom that fails to honor your design. It reminds me of an illustration that I've heard a long time ago. It's a story of a, the Pennsylvania public school system. They had a playground at one end of their property. The only problem, it was a huge playground and great for the kids. They loved it. But the only problem was it was right next to a really busy street. And so it was very dangerous. And so rightly so, the school board decided to put up a fence all the way around the playground. And when they put up a fence around the playground, the parents were very offended. They actually started to push back against them because they thought it looked like their children were actually in a prison. And so they fought and fought and fought the school board for months. And so finally the school board, it got so heated that they decided that the fence should be torn down. And you know what happened next? The very next day, when the children went out to the playground to play, What do you think happened? All of the children huddled in a cluster, in a ball, in the middle of the playground, 
deathly afraid of the expanse of the playground that surrounded them. Do you see it? The fence actually gave them the playground. The fence gave them the playground. Is it not possible that at the heart of the Ten Commandments is God's intention to give you the whole world? Did you hear that? At the heart of the Ten Commandments is God's desire to give you the playground. That is what the Ten Commandments are all about at their heart. You see, this semester, friends, there is an ocean of blessing awaiting us in our study. Because as we're going to see, is true freedom comes from living the way we were designed. And the way we were designed to live is what the Ten Commandments are all about. The purpose. Secondly, let's look at the motivation. Look at verses 1 and 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These two verses, in my opinion, are the most important verses in our study this semester. And here's why. Because they show us something that is so central to the gospel and so central to Christianity, and it is this. Look at it. Before God ever gave one commandment, He told them and reminded them that they had already been rescued. Do you see that? In other words, the law was given to an already rescued people. Let me translate. God said, I love you. Be secure in my love. Nothing can change my love for you. I have rescued you from sin and death and evil. Now go be the people that I have called you to be. Isn't that amazing? That's the beauty of the commandments. The Ten Commandments and the law is not about trying harder, doing better so that you can earn God's favor and love, but they actually flow out of relationship. They don't form the relationship. Did you hear that? The Ten Commandments flow out of relationship. They don't form the relationship. Let me say it this way. The Ten Commandments, believe it or not, don't begin with the law. What do they begin with? The gospel. We can't mix up the order in our study this semester. Because if we put law before gospel, we will be crushed. We will be discouraged. We will be disappointed. We can't mix up the order. It is always gospel then law. Many Christians think that the law is somehow opposed to the gospel and they think in the Old Testament salvation came through the law. And then in the New Testament when Jesus came that somehow the law or the salvation came through grace. No. Grace is, salvation has always been by grace through faith in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. 
Salvation came the very same way. And what we see is that the law and the gospel actually work together in both Testaments to bring about salvation to God's people. It's interesting. Look at the book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 19. What's that about? Read it. It's all about God's love and God fulfilling His promise. It's all about the fact that God has rescued His people from the house of Egypt and from slavery. And then chapter 20, he spends a few verses saying, okay, in light of who you are, now go live and be holy. If we try to reverse it, if we put law before gospel, we will become a legalist. Here's what a legalist This is their thinking. I am going to obey God so that He will hear my prayers. I'm going to obey God so that I can get a good job, fix my family, get a good person to marry, help me on a test, and get me into heaven. In other words, a legalist says, I'm going to be good so that God will be good to me. You know that you have put the law before the gospel this semester and become a legalist when you have done everything you're supposed to do, and then suddenly God doesn't give you what you want, and you become angry and frustrated and bitter at Him. You get mad at God because you are serving Him, not to get Him, but actually you're serving Him to get things from Him. In other words, you're not loving the giver. You're simply loving the gifts that He gives. And you put God in your debt because you think somehow that God owes you something. And if you start to put law before gospel, it will be detrimental to your soul this semester in two ways. Because you will become arrogant or prideful. I mentioned this last week, but you will lower the law to something that you can obtain and you will hold everyone else in contempt. Or... The law will crush you. And you will see the law and you will always be discouraged because you'll say, there's no way that I could possibly meet the law. And you know what you'll start to think of God? You'll start to hate Him. Because He'll feel like a taskmaster. You'll never feel quite good enough. And instead of loving the law and loving God you will grow bitter towards Him because you are trying to make God serve you rather than truly serving God out of a heart of love. Friends, I've actually done that. That's the way I've lived most of my life, believe it or not. I'm an approval junkie. (laughs) And I think constantly that I've got to earn God's love for me. And you know what it ends up doing? It ends up making you hate the Christian life. And it ends up making you really want to quit and give up. And so if we have a legalist mindset, it will be detrimental to our outlook and to how we experience the commandments this semester. What if Christianity were different? Christianity is not legalism. Christianity is the opposite of legalism, isn't it? Because Christianity says, and a Christian looks at the law and they love the law. You know why they love the law? Because they see the law as coming from God. And they know that God loves them deeply. 
And because God loves them deeply, they can delight in the law because you know what? A Christian looks at the law and says, God loves me and this is what he says is best for me. And so I will follow him and I will live for him. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord God. Is that what it says? Notice how personal this passage is. I am the Lord, your God. One of the most important things I want us to get here as we lay the foundation is that the commandments are given in the context of a relationship. They're given in the context of the relationship. And what that tells us is that obedience is always relational. That's at the central of Christianity. God is a person. You see, when we start to think of God as some abstract moral force out there in the world, think about what that does to the commandments. Well, then the commandments become this abstract thing floating around in our minds because they're not coming from any sort of person. And what we see right from the beginning of the Ten Commandments is that the Ten Commandments aren't just an ethical code that are posted in the classroom somewhere, but they're given by a personal God that we are in relationship with. Obedience is always a relational matter. So secondly, our motivation. We've seen the purpose, motivation, and finally our hope. We must understand that yes, the law teaches us how to live. The Ten Commandments show us how life works best. But there's something that the Ten Commandments cannot do. What can't the Ten Commandments do? They can't save us. They can't change us in our heart of hearts. And though they're powerless to change us and to rescue us, the Ten Commandments or the law do something very important. And we can't miss this. They show sinners like you and me our need for Jesus. And for us to really grasp this, let me explain. Hang with me. God commands and requires and obligates His people to obey the law perfectly. It's true. Why does God, think about it logically, why does God obligate us to do that? I mean, that seems so overwhelming, but it makes total sense. If God is holy... He's 100% holy. He can't be anything other than holy and anything other than righteousness. And if we are His people in relationship with Him, if He is our God and we are His people, then to be in His presence, what do we have to be? We have to be 100% holy. Therefore, we have to obey the law perfectly, the Bible says. What's the problem with that? Yes. Israel couldn't do it. And you and I can't do it. That's a huge problem, isn't it? But think, I mean, think about the Bible. Even in this Exodus, 12, 12 chapters later, no sooner than God had said, have no idols and worship no other gods before me, they're worshiping a golden calf. <laughs> they couldn't do it. And so here's where we are. You're thinking, Jason, so what you're telling me is God has obligated or bound us to keep a law that we cannot keep. That is absolutely 100% right. 
And so then the question becomes is why? I mean, that sounds crazy. Why in the world would God give us something that we could not keep and bind us to keep it? Why would he give us something that was actually going to condemn us? Here's the answer. God gave us the law so that you and I would believe the gospel. Friends, it's always been part of God's plan from the very beginning, before eternity. God's plan was to send Jesus to rescue his people. He gave the Old Testament people the law to show them their need for a Savior and their need to be rescued. And they, when they saw their need, looked forward to the cross and were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ their Savior. You and I look back towards the cross, don't we? To the rescuer that God has already sent named Jesus. They looked forward, we look back saved the very same way through grace by faith. The law shows us things in our life that we need to start dealing with so that we'll start looking for a Savior. So that we'll start looking for Jesus. Donald Barnhouse explained it this way. The law is like a mirror. You know what a mirror does? The purpose of a mirror is to what? To reveal the dirt, or something on your face. But the mirror cannot clean your face. For example, you don't look into a mirror and see dirt on your face and then take that mirror off the wall and start scrubbing your face. Absolutely not. What is the mirror? That's not the purpose. The purpose of the mirror is to what? Drive you to the water. To drive you to the place where you can be cleansed. And that's what the law does for us. The law shows us the place where we can be rescued. It doesn't rescue us, but it points us to Jesus who rescues us from the power and from the penalty of sin. And the law is just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. Application. This semester, we're going to look head-on, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball into the law of God. And I want to encourage you not to be afraid. I want to encourage you not to be filled with shame and guilt as we bump up next to the law of God and to the Ten Commandments. Don't be consumed by your sin. But instead, let the commandments actually drive you and cause you to run as fast as you can to the Lord Jesus Christ and to fall on your face before Him and to worship Him because He is your rescuer and He is your redeemer. Let it drive you to Jesus to worship and to have a life of thanksgiving. Why? Because Jesus, check this out. Let's make it, let's come full circle. You and I can't keep the law which is why Jesus had to come and live a sinless life and to keep the law perfectly. You ever wondered, I was saying this in freshman Bible study, why Jesus couldn't have just been, you know, killed as a teenager and why he had to wait 33 years? Because Jesus was establishing us 
for us with his life a perfect record of obedience. He had to obey the law perfectly and to face everything that he had to face and that we would face and look that in the eye and be obedient. Why did he do it? For you and for me. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that just that Jesus died for our sins and rescued us from our brokenness. Yes, that's 100% true. But it's just as true that in his perfect life, he won a record of obedience for you so that when you become a Christian, by faith in Jesus Christ, guess what happens? He gives you that perfect record of obedience. He gives you his perfect robes of righteousness so that when God looks at you, He sees someone just as if they had never sinned. Just as if they had obeyed the law perfectly. Friends, that is, that's a game changer. Now do you see why it's called the good news? The good news of the gospel. Children's uh, writer in a children's book. I'm going to use a lot of Lewis. I'm sorry. I'm a fan. But C.S. Lewis has a book called the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it's a children's book. And one of the main characters in the story is a young boy by the name of Eustace Scrub. And Eustace had wandered away from the rest of the children. And so he was out in the middle of nowhere, of nowhere and he actually saw a dragon die. And it started to rain, and the weather started to get bad, and so Eustace goes into this nearby cave in order to get shelter. He falls asleep, wakes up the next morning, and he senses some movement in his right arm, and he looks down, and he actually has a dragon hand. You can imagine how freaked out a young child would be seeing that they actually have a dragon hand. Eustace takes off running to the nearby pond and he looks into the pond at his reflection and he notices that he has a dragon face. And C.S. Lewis comments and says, with dragonous thoughts in his heart, Eustace had become a dragon. You see, Eustace realized what a monster he was inside. He realized how hateful and bitter and angry he had been with his cousins and then with other children that he would play with. Eustace got very sad. He's playing and walking around deeply saddened and he runs into Aslan. If you were here a couple weeks ago, in all of Lewis's stories, Aslan represents Jesus. And when he runs into Aslan, Eustace says that even being a dragon, he was more afraid than he had ever been in his entire life. And Aslan looks at Eustace and says, take off your dragon skin. And Eustace starts furiously trying to pull off his dragon skin and he pulls off layer after layer after layer and he looks down and he's still a dragon. He looks down and he realizes he has made no progress whatsoever. And then Aslan looks at him and says, Eustace, I have to undress you. I have to take off the dragon skin. 
And Eustace was even more afraid because he looked at Aslan's huge paw and he saw the razor-sharp claws and how long they were. And he says, Aslan took the first swipe into the dragon's skin and he said it was like he had pierced his heart. He went on to say that it actually hurt worse than anything he had felt in his entire life. And then when it was over, Eustace looks beside him and he sees this huge pile of skin. And he said it was uglier and darker and nastier than he had ever thought it would be. And then he runs as fast as he can and he looks into this pond and he realizes that he's a boy again. I tell you that story because it is a vivid picture of how sin distorts us, of how sin twists us and actually makes us a caricature of what we were intended to be. And like Eustace, what we tend to do is when we bump up next to our sin, we say, we've got this. And so we simply start to peel the layers of skin, of sin, out of our lives, thinking everything will be okay. But we quickly realize, don't we, that might work for a week or two, but then we bump up next to our sin again, and we realize that our sin problem is so deep that only Jesus can do it. You know, if we let Jesus do it, it's probably going to hurt, isn't it? In fact, it's probably going to hurt like Eustace worse than anything that we've ever felt. We're studying the Ten Commandments this semester. And my question for all of us, will we let the Ten Commandments expose us? Will we let the Ten Commandments show us our broken ways of relating to God? That's all the first four commandments and show us our broken ways of relating to other people. You know, I really hope we will. Because if we do, like Eustace, we will emerge finally and fully human. Let's pray.